Well, good morning, Hope Church. Welcome. If this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could join us this morning. My name is David, um, and uh, we are. We, we actually have something new. I'm, I'm excited whenever we have something new. We got bags out front. If you didn't get one already coming in, I think I see a couple. You may have already got them. If you didn't get one, make sure you get one on your way out. Uh, we just have something for you as a first-time visitor. We're so glad you could join us this morning. Um, praise the Lord. Uh, we are continuing a, a study through the book of Colossians this morning. Um, and our theme through the book of Colossians, because it has so much to do with Jesus Christ, uh, is growing in Christ. Years ago, when I worked at Qualcomm back in San Diego... Yes, I have California roots. Um, I remember being at lunch with a friend of mine, a um, good friend of mine. He's from Pakistan. He's a Muslim. And he asked me the question, um, what's it mean that you're a Christian? What's that mean? He's also the one that had asked me, you know, comes into my office in the middle of everything. Wasn't Jesus just another prophet? You never know what you're going to get hit with in the middle of work. But he asked me, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and, and that, it's an interesting thing to answer someone in this culture because what it means to be a Christian has meant a lot of different things in American culture specifically. Um, it's something interesting to think about yourself. How would you answer that? What does it mean to call yourself a Christian? What is that? In the early church, um, they, didn't, they didn't call themselves Christians right away. Uh, they... They said that they were people of the way, the way. Uh, when Paul, or early as, earlier as he was referred to as Saul, was persecuting the Christians, and he was on the road to Damascus where we know he would meet the Lord on the way, uh, Acts tells us that he was, he was seeking men and women of the way to capture them and take them back to Jerusalem, to persecute them, of the way. What did it mean to be of the way? Maybe, it's, maybe that's a better thing when we're thinking, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be of the way? That would be a better way to phrase it and think about it. Um, what did that mean back then? We, we, saw, um, we saw when in, in it definitely those who were of the way made a difference uh, in the culture around them. Certainly, Paul was looking for those who were of the way to persecute them. Um, in Ephesus, uh, it says that the, those who were of the way made no small disturbance. Um, I forget exactly the words it used for that, but, it, but that's what it says, because those of the way were turning away from idol worship, were turning away from all these things they used to do, and, and everyone who sold idols and those who made money off of all of that we're starting to lose business because people were turning towards the way. It was upsetting even the culture there. So there's definitely those of the way had an effect on those around them. Um, there in Ephesus as well, uh, we see in the book of Acts where, where Apollos was teaching, and he was teaching, it says, the way of the Lord accurately, uh, but he didn't fully understand it because all he had been taught was from John the Baptist who came before Jesus and said, you know, this is, this is the way of the Lord, but after me is coming one, you're going to need to believe in him, speaking of Jesus. 
And so then Priscilla and Aquila hear that he's talking, and they, they come alongside him and say, and they explain better, and, and Acts tells us that they explain better uh, the way of God. It's the way. What is the way? It, it's, it is the way that God has provided through his son Jesus. More than any other religion where, where you might say this is the way of a man or a way of uh, someone who no longer exists today, this is, this is a claim to be the way of God provided through his son Jesus. And those who are of the way are following that way that he has provided. So last week, um, in Colossians, we dug into a section that really got into who Christ is. And it was almost too big, it, it was too big to get our heads around really who Christ is as we're considering in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that he is God, that, that he was there at creation, all things were created through him and for him. And to just, to just get our minds around that, and, and it was almost too cosmic in scope for us to, to feel the personal purpose of God through his Son and, and even when it's talking about the purpose of his cross to reconcile, it, it was saying to reconcile in heaven and earth all things. It, it was the, the grand scope of God's purpose through his son. But then what we're going to get into now in these next, we're only going to cover three verses this morning. In these next three verses, uh, he, he, he brings it back to the Colossians and, and the personal love that God has for them. Now what's accomplished, his way provided through his son Jesus. Um, let's turn there in Colossians chapter 1. We're starting in verse 21. It says, and you, Colossians, or you, Hope Church, and you who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing the way, the only way, through your son Jesus. God, as we look into these words that you inspired Paul to write to that church in Colossae, um, knowing that these would be words uh, that, that would be effective even to a church 2,000 years later in Kyle, God, I pray your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to your truth, that we would know uh, either know better the way, have a stronger faith in the way that you have provided and what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. God, or if there's those here this morning who, who've never really come to understand the way that you have provided that this morning they would see that for the first time. God, open our eyes to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So there in verse 21, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
the way starts with understanding where we're starting from, <laughs> where we're coming from. Our first point that he's, that he's just drawing our attention to is sinful in mind and actions. Sinful in mind and actions. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's where the Colossians were. Before Epaphras brought them the word of the gospel, the truth, and it, and it transformed them, they were in a place hostile towards God in mind and in their actions. That's where we were. That's where we all have started is sinful, and I put the word sinful because ultimately that's what we're dealing with, is our sin before God. We have to understand that before we understand God's purpose in the way. Um, this last couple of weeks, uh, well, for last month or two, we've been getting back into, after a couple of years being away from martial arts in our family, um, I got back into it with my kids, and my body's been feeling that. And the last couple of weeks started sparring again. Um, and a week ago, uh, I got to where when I went to sneeze, I couldn't sneeze because as soon as this, you know, the cavity started to come open and uh, this sharp pain right here would just hit me and it would knock out the sneeze. I never had something like that before that could actually stop a sneeze halfway through. And so... Terrible symptom, what could that be? I'd, I go to where I always go after Taekwondo, is the chiropractor. <laughs> um, went to the chiropractor, and boy, I was all kinds of messed up all over the place. This up here was a rib that had popped out of place, and, and the chiropractor was able to push that back into place after two visits last week. It's all good now, I can sneeze again. Uh, there was a rib out of place in the back. I, my, my spine was like up and down and all. It's just, I was all over the place. There were symptoms, and I had, a, had some clue of what was wrong with me. But it wasn't until I went to someone who could say, no, here's what's wrong. You got a rib out of place. Your, your spine's twisted around whichever way. This is up and that's down. It's not supposed to be that way. Where we start is where we don't even have a sense of what's wrong. We know something's wrong, and it's much worse than it hurts when I sneeze. It hurts when you don't understand sometimes where the hurt is coming from or why you feel empty or why something is just not right in your life. You can't find the thing to fill whatever's needed to have true contentment and peace in your life. We've got to see what's wrong before we're going to go through the way to fix it. And that's what God in his grace is doing. When even before Christ came, he sent, he, he sent John the Baptist to go and, and, and have a message of repentance. What is he doing? He's exposing, here's the problem. Sin is the problem. You need to turn from that. And the one who's going to be able to help you out of that is coming. So it starts with understanding of sin. Um, let's go to Romans chapter 1 where we definitely are shown the problem. 
Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So our, our foundational problem is suppressing the truth about who God is. That's our foundational problem here. And, and he's saying you're without excuse because evidence of God's power, of, of the existence of a God, it, it, when, if you study in school, study how our body's made up, study the universe, study things at the grandest scale, at the tiniest scale, and just think that at the tiniest scale everything is, all the grand scale is made up of that at the tiny scale. And, and just to think of life and, and the complexity of that and the design of that, the evidence that there is a God is without question there, but what are we doing foundationally is we're suppressing the truth about who God is. That's, that's our foundational issue. And, and what he's going to do here, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and, and what he's going to do here is kind of go back in kind of a history of just the demise of the human race in sin. Uh, this started there in the Garden of Eden, uh, but just, just how things have, have worked out since then. And he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Boy, we saw that in the, in the history of the Old Testament and, and even just there in the Garden of Eden to say, oh, I could be wise like God. I could be like God. I'm going to put myself before God. That's the first step to that. But then even as the Israelites are there at Mount Sinai and, and God is, is giving the, the Ten Commandments to Moses up on the mountain and there's this, they've already experienced the glory of God, they don't want the glory of God. They can't control the glory of God. The glory of God is scary. So what do they do? They create a golden calf. They can control that. And, they, and they, they're so bold as to say, this golden calf is the God that brought you out of Egypt. What a slap in the face to the Almighty God. But that's, that's the sin. Where we're coming from is, is, is to suppress the truth about who God is and to put ourselves up there and to create things that we can control. To say, oh no, that's God. Let's, let's put God at a reduced level. And in verse 24, so what does God do? Therefore, he gave them up. Those are scary words. God to allow you then to go forth in sin. And that's all of us. That's our history. That's, that's what's happened. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What does it mean that he gave us up? For us, we don't even see that it's a problem anymore. See, when we were there, present in the holiness of God, early our ancestors there, Adam and Eve and, and, and Moses, uh, it, it, you, have, you have the glory of God shows very quickly the holiness of God shows sin to be sin. It shows these things are wrong. 
But to, to give us up to those things is to say, I'm going to just let you go and think you're okay. Just let you go and you're not going to even see the holiness of God against your actions. That, that, this is where, uh, where things progressed then. A dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This leads to us dishonoring our bodies. And we don't even know it. It's dishonoring from God's perspective, from our perspective. We think, oh, these things are just fine. There's all sorts of things that we've done. And, and where he's going to go then is, is an example of where this can go in dishonoring our bodies from God's perspective. And it's because, in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, again, the same words, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. For the history of the world, this has been where culture ultimately goes, is where we accept these behaviors as good, as okay. That's what we see around us, is it not? And it's not just these. This is an example of where it goes. But we're all included in this. We accept acts that are impure, that are dishonoring to us, to, to our body. And we accept those things because we've, as, as a culture we've been given over. It, he has given us up to the lusts of our flesh, of our heart. That's where we're coming from. And in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, again, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So again, we're in a place of thinking, oh, this is okay for us to do these things. We're given up to a debased mind. In verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and this is going to be a long list, evil, covetousness, malice they are full of envy these are things that ought not to be done murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. When did God first give that decree? It was there in the Garden of Eden. If you eat of this, if you disobey God, you will surely die. Those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And in case any of us, because it is our tendency to see these lists and think of all sorts of people that fit well into these lists, and in case we haven't included ourselves in that yet, we have chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. There's what's wrong with us. 
And what we deserve out of that is death. And it's, it's death from God's perspective. It's not just this body of flesh dying. It's a soul death. It's, it's eternal punishment in hell. It's what we deserve. It's God's righteous decree. Like in Ephesians chapter 2, two wonderful words. But God... The love of God towards those who are his enemies, to those who are hostile towards him, who have turned away from him, who, who have disobeyed him in every respect and, and don't even know the extent of their own sin. They don't even know what's wrong in them. God so loved us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to provide the way. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Colossians 1, 21 again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now, the Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The punishment is death. God's righteous decree is that these things deserve death. But he has reconciled us by his death. His death. Why was it necessary? Of course we see why it's necessary that God would, his son Jesus, who we, we saw from the cosmic perspective, the creator, all things created through him, by him, for him. It, it's, it, that's Jesus then to put on humanity, the weakness of humanity, and become a human like us, but without sin, to be tempted as we are, but without sin, then he could serve that punishment. Only as God can, perfect Jesus, almighty Jesus, could then suffer on the cross and put to death uh, his body of flesh. That, that's, that's not to, don't think every time the word flesh shows up, that means that's sin. His, his, that means his mortal body. By putting to death that body that he took on, that became the blood sacrifice for us. We're deserving of death. Jesus took the payment for us. Look with me real quick in John chapter 14. In verse 1. Jesus is just telling his disciples he's about to go. Um, and they're saying, can we go with you? And, and Peter's telling him, Lord, I, yeah, why can't I go with you? I, I'll lay my life down for you. And that's when he says, well, Peter, actually, you're about to deny me three times. But, but he says that where I'm going now, you're not going to be able to come, but you will be able to come later. But then Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We're saying believe in the way maker and the way. <laughs> in my Father's house are many rooms. If, the, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We're talking about the destination of the way. 
This is God's purpose in the way of where we're going. And then he tells them, and you know the way to where I am going. (laughs) Thomas is like, what? We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going? He's trying to figure this out. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. You know me, Thomas. You know the way. What is the way that God has provided? Those who are of the way. The way is the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus is how we get from Romans chapter 1 to John 14, 1. Where, God is, is, where Christ is preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever. How do we get from there to there? It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. And notice that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We are sinful in mind, and out of that mindset that is hostile towards God, It becomes sin in action. Jesus comes in and he transforms our mind with truth. In him is truth. In him is the fullness of who God is, the character of God. And in that is who we are designed to be. And for the first time, we see the holiness of God and we see our sin. We see the rib is out of place. There's something much worse. The heart is out of place. And and in Christ... Is, is the way, he is the way, through relationship with him, the truth, to, to change our minds to know the truth and, and to accept the truth, and then to have new action, life, new life in Jesus Christ. So even before we get to the final goal of, of, of being living in the presence of God, he is already transforming our life now. To make us new. And that's the next point. Transformed life. Back in Colossians, if you see um, the purpose in verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh uh, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the purpose. Why did Jesus come to save sinners? transform their lives, to present them holy and blameless and pure before Him, in relationship with Him, to dwell with Him. But before we can have that perfect relationship and dwelling with God, we have to become as He is, holy. See the contrast there? In verse 1, you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds... Just put ourselves equal with the worst of anyone we consider humanly uh, who's on death row or anything else. That, that, that's where we are. The contrast between us and the holiness of God, we can't make any distinction between us and any other human. We're all sinners. And before a holy God, just as disgusting and just as deserving of death. And then to take that and to be able to say, holy, blameless, pure. How's that even possible? It's only possible 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. That sacrifice had to happen. For us to have forgiveness, to us to have washing and, and the Holy Spirit to come in power in our lives to actually make a difference and to wash us clean from the filth of sin that we have in our lives to place us then holy before God. We have to have the blood of Jesus. He is the way, the only way. There is no other way except through Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter the incredible love of God. In Ephesians, when Paul's talking to husbands about how you should love your wife, he, he shows that, that marriage itself is an analogy. It's a picture of the relationship between those who have put their faith in, in Christ, who are considered the body of Christ, who are considered the bride of Christ. That relationship between the bride of Christ and Christ and how Jesus loves his bride when we get into this, we see the love of God towards us. We see the love of Jesus towards his precious bride that he is saving out of sin to make holy and precious before him. So in Ephesians, let's turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking to husbands, he kind of gets on this tr rabbit trail because he's, I think he's just excited about really what this all means. And in chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, Love your wives. And by the way, husbands, this is the example of how we're supposed to love our wives. There's no limit to how we can grow in this. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might, here's the purpose of God in your life to make you holy. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, Jesus' regard for you is not just you individually, it's you as part of his body. To do this work, to make us, Hope Church, along with every other body that calls on the name of Jesus, here in Kyle and all the way around the world, for all the generations of the world. That is his bride. To present his bride holy and blameless and pure and without spot before him. To transform us. That is the purpose of the way. What's the right response to that? What's the right response when we realize God's purpose in our lives? The destination, <laughs> the start, as we come to know better. When we first come to Christ, we don't really see yet the fullness of our sin. I think it's God's grace that he doesn't show us the fullness of our sin. We can only take so much at a time. But it's a process, and so what, is, what does Paul say in Romans? I'm going to turn there real quick. Romans chapter 1. Someday I'll have my whole Bible memorized. We can just go out of memory. Probably not. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The right response. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, <coughs> present your bodies, physical bodies, 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. <coughs> Do not be conformed to this world. We know where the world is at. Foundational of uh, the mindset that's against God and everything that comes out of that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, what do I do here? I'm right here, and I know that's the destination. I, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, the way. Take everything that I have here, my body, my wants, my desires, everything that is of this world, and lay it at his feet. This is, this is a physical sacrifice that is a spiritual sacrifice. Because why am I laying it down? Because I know Christ is transforming it into his image. His purpose in it is good. So, so I may not know why he's the, how I get from here to there and what he's telling me to do, how that gets me from here to there, but I'm trusting him in that, and I am laying my own life down as a sacrifice, my own wants, my own desires, saying, Jesus, it's all for you, knowing it's in the hands of a Savior who loves me as a, as, as a part of his bride that he is working to make holy and blameless before him, to trust him in that. And that gets us finally to our last point. Is that it's only by steadfast faith, trusting Jesus. Back in Colossians, verse 23, there's a condition he puts here. If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This, is, it, this shows up a lot, this idea of it's, it's steadfast faith. The steadfastness, this endurance of, of the faith. What he's saying here, and, and we see it in a bunch of different ways, is it's only real faith. Real trusting in Christ that is saving faith. Now, now, we know from other scripture, one of the things that when we look at something like this, we go, oh, I'm going to have to work hard to keep my faith up. What happens if I lose faith? Well, what we know from other places in scripture is that in the moment that you have real faith in Christ, that it's not then our power that sustains us to get there. The Holy Spirit enters our lives. The Holy Spirit puts his seal on our lives it uses language like a guarantee in our life to get us there. But what is he saying here? Is it real faith that you started with? Is it real faith, steadfast faith in your life? In James chapter 2, we're not going to turn to chapter 2, but James hits that question straight on. He said, what, what good is it if I say I have faith, but there's no, there's no works in my life? There's, there's no evidence of that. Is, that. is that a saving faith? What are we expecting to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to enter my life. If I, if I put my trust in Jesus, he's going to enter my life, and that's going to begin a transforming process. It's going to change my thinking. It's going to change the foundation of my beliefs. That, that is going to result in a change in my actions to no longer be conformed to the world, but to start being transformed and to start to look like Jesus. 
the character of Jesus, to start seeing love and peace and joy in my life and, and contentment in my life and start seeing things that I didn't have before, I should start to see action coming out of my life that reflects that I'm trusting not myself, not my old beliefs, but I'm trusting in Christ now. What about the steadfastness? Look with me in chapter 1 of James. If I turn the right way. God helps us with this, to have assurance that the faith is real. It's a wonderful thing called a trial. And James says in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's through trials that we see steadfastness begin to pair up with our faith. And so we say, thank you, Lord, for trials in my life because I know that in the testing of my faith that even as things don't look up, things don't look well in this life, I'm continuing to trust Christ. And as I get through that trial, now God is working steadfastness to my faith. He's, he's showing me that the faith that he's even producing in me in the midst of those trials. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is God doing in that process? He's transforming us into the image of Christ. Down in verse 12, which <laughs> all of James. Here's James chapter 1 and chapter 2. Homework, there you go. Good stuff. Verse 12 in chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You're going to make it. <laughs> You're going to make it. Our hope is set there. Even in the midst of the darkest trial, we know we're going to make it. If you're still going, Pastor David, I'm still not quite sure about my faith. I don't know that I see evidence in my life that would suggest that faith is real. Christianity is not a fake it to make it religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with Christ. You either do or you don't have a relationship with him. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, there will be a lot of fake it to make it. They'll get there and they'll say, Jesus, we, we prophesied in your name. We did all these works in your name. Look, we were the perfect Christians. And there will be pastors in there. There will be people from every part of Christianity in that list. And he will say, I never knew you. Don't fake it to make it. If, you're, if you have doubts of your faith, I tell you, don't try to produce the evidence of faith in your life to prove something that doesn't exist. Get to know Jesus. Open this book and study. Go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and get to just know, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Get to know Jesus. Get to know the teachings of the apostles who are teaching the ways and commands of Jesus. And just, if you still have doubts, pursue God. Pursue Christ. Pursue getting to know Jesus. 
And let that be ultimately what brings you to the point of, of understanding to say, no, I see. Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. And in him is life. And I see now my sin for what it is because his truth has revealed that. And then let God produce repentance in your heart and turn to faith, trusting Jesus. Then you will start to see changes in your life. Don't do it the other way around. As a pastor, the worst thing that I can do is just to say, oh yeah, you're okay, while you stand here not knowing Jesus. In fact, I'm accountable to that <laughs> before the Lord someday. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Boy, no one comes to the Father except through me. Praise the Lord that he is the way, that God provided a way for us to come to know God, for us to be saved from our sin and to have such incredible grace poured out in our lives to be blessed with inheritance with Christ someday in the future. Praise the Lord that in Christ we have the fullness of God represented, the character of God. We have the truth. So we don't have to go continue in a place of just not even knowing what we're doing wrong but to have the light of God's truth shown into our life to see it. Praise the Lord that in Jesus we have life. Life abundantly, even now. Eternal life begins now. Let's praise the Lord together. sun away and now I'm compelled to say I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord I believe in my that God raised him from death with my heart I am sure with my mouth I proclaim I receive your forgiveness and I know I'm saved. So lead me to a place sweet humility. Lord, drop me to my knees so that all my eyes can see all the feet of the one who was pierced for me. God, you gave your son away. And now I'm compelled to see. Jesus is Lord, I believe in my heart that God raised him from death. With my heart I am sure, and with my mouth I proclaim I receive your forgiveness. Now I know that I'm saved, yes I'm saved.
from sin. I'm saved from being apart from you. I'm saved from the fire. I'm saved from my sorrow. I'm saved for today. I'll still be saved for tomorrow. And I'm saved from from being apart from you, saved from the fire, saved from all sorrow, saved for today, I'll still be saved by tomorrow, and I'm saved, yes I'm saved, I confess with my Provide the way through your son to be able to say, I am saved. And to have that confident assurance that you work in our life through trials. And to see how you've been faithful and how you have grown faith in my own heart. So that I can just look forward now in peace. Knowing that someday I'll see you face to face, Lord Jesus. Love you, God. Love you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you for carrying us through difficult times to live in your grace. God, go with us this week. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.